In this episode of Startups to the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about building relationships with agency partners, determining equity splits, and more listener questions. This is Startups to the Rest of Us, episode 428. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. Que es la palabra esta semana, Miguel? Uh, Sorry, you that's what, I think you said what is the word this week, sir? What is the word this week, Mike, actually? says. What? So what's going on with your computer? Oh, the, I, I was trying to fix a uh, random crash that I ran into. And, of course, like as, as part of doing that, like yeah, I had to restart the machine in order to debug some of the stuff that was coming up and test some drivers. And I think as a result of that, my computer is now blue screening and I can't get it back into Windows. Ouch. So I spent the last couple of hours trying to figure out like, okay, well, go to the new crash dump and take a look at that and see if I can get access to it. And, uh, and then I'm like troubleshooting certain things from looking them up from my phone and it's just awful. Right. Right. Well, the good news is you don't have other work that you should be doing. Sure. Yeah. Right? You don't have anything else that's pressing. <laughs> nothing else to do. Oh. Hey, I, I think I know the solution actually. Step one, uninstall windows. Step two, install Linux. Boom, boom. Sorry, that was a, I think that's like a microconf joke, right? That probably is. It's, it's that bad. Yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> just pick up your, don't you have a Mac, like a Mac laptop? Just, just yeah, go, Mac, go home Mac all the time, baby. Oh, I, you know, I, You're I can't seriously considering it? No, I can't stand the trackpad. Like, that's the thing that bugs me the most is like, it just, I can't stand using it. And all of my uh, development stuff is all on Windows anyway. So that's the yeah. thing. That's the hard part. Yep. I, so I don't, I mean, I use the trackpad. I, I think it's fine, but uh, I use an external mouse, right? When I'm at my desk, I like put the laptop up, you know, Mike, it is like 2018, right? You know, that you can, you can pair mice with Bluetooth or even USB to a, to a laptop. Yep. Did you know that? I, I did know that. <laughs> I'm giving you a lot of crap today, huh? I know. Uh, this is <laughs> kicking you while you're down. Oh man, I'm sorry. I've, I remember those days and I would lose a day or two of productivity and it would just kill me. It was, it's infuriating. Yep. And that's really the point I'm at. And it's just like, I'm just annoyed at this point. And the worst part is that I, I've, so I'm running, still running Windows 7. And I've known for a while that I need to, I should like migrate over to Windows 10 at some point. And there's so, some software that I literally can't use right now because I'm not running a more recent version of Windows. But I know that there's also so much stuff installed and it's configured in just the right way so that my build works and everything's configured just right. And I know that I'm going to burn like at least a couple of days, like reformatting my machine and reinstalling everything. And I just didn't want to do it. And now I'm at the point where it's like, you know what? I may just absolutely have to. And fortunately, a couple of days ago, I had looked and said, okay, well, if I was going to do this, what software would I need? And I made a complete list of it and I took screenshots and I was smart enough to put it all in a Google doc rather than on my hard drive. Oh, nice. Jeez. That's tough. Again, I don't miss those days. Like I'm not, I was never, I've never been like the Windows basher because I used Windows for, I don't know, 12 years, something, and then switched to Mac. And I remember being like, oh, 
this is better in some ways and not in others. You know, I mean, I, I to be honest, I, I never thought that like Mac was so far superior to, to Windows. Now that I've been on it for years, though, I haven't had another one of those days, you know, and I used to have those every few years because just especially when you're a developer, you're just doing aggressive things with your machine, right? You're not surfing the web, looking at Facebook and doing Google Docs. I mean, you're, you're in screwing around with registry stuff and you're installing things that you probably shouldn't. And, you know, you install and uninstall a lot of things and you run builds. And I don't know, I just remember screwing my machine up every couple of years. And I also remember the upgrade process was hard and cumbersome. And, and I think that's something that Apple has done a much better job. I mean, ex- example, I upgraded to Mojave last week and which is the next version of the OS and has some new features and stuff, but it's an incremental version, right? But they release those every, I don't know, 60, 90 days, it seems like. And knock on wood, the upgrades always go fine. I've not had an issue. I'm sure it's possible to have an issue, but I haven't had an issue. And it's just kind of, you know, now it has new stuff. And I, I haven't had another moment like that since, since I switched to using a Mac, which I believe is probably six years now, five or six years. So I don't know. It's hard when that happens and you lose that much productivity. Yeah. And right. Uh, I'm, thankful that like it's just going to be the productivity because like i have backup software on my machine so it's not like i'm losing data or anything and i've got a local nas device that i store a lot of stuff on and then i've got dropbox where i've got all the other important stuff so it's it's not like my hard drive is dead and even if it was i could still get everything back it's just the time of like reinstalling and reconfiguring everything and then trying to make sure that like i still have all the software licenses and the right versions and everything else because i forget who it was i think it was it's like pdf architect or something like that they're like oh click like there's a new update click here for the update and then i clicked on it i was like oh okay and you know then it installed and then it's like oh you don't have the latest versions or the latest license so we're not going to let you use it i'm like wait a second you just gave me this thing that like you pushed this upgrade on me it's like, come on. So, yeah. Yeah. I've had that happen before. Yeah, it's not cool. Oh, onward, I guess. So, for the listeners, again, don't forget about the AppSumo contest that's running, and we'll link that up in the show notes so you can go check it out. But uh, as with last week, there's a contest that's running right now in partnership with AppSumo, and the winner is going to receive an all expense paid trip to MicroConf, uh, tickets included. So, we'll, as I said, we'll link it up in the show notes and uh, definitely check it out. And if you are interested in having us answer a question, I believe we are getting towards the bottom of the mailbag. So send us a voicemail if you can. You can call our voicemail number 888-801-9690. We just like hearing your voice and frankly, the listeners do too. It makes people feel like it's not just you and I making up emails, sending emails to ourselves and reading them on the show. No, that's not really why we're doing it. But it's just fun to have voicemails. But certainly if you can't, send us an email, questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. We're going to be answering several listener questions on the show today. The first one is about building relationships with agency partners. And it's from PJ. He says, I love your podcast, especially like how you give us a short update at the start about your own businesses. My question is around building a partner circle at the beginning of a business, especially when services are a necessary angle for the product. So I'm assuming he's services, I'm assuming he means consultants, agencies. What type of engagement models would you recommend thinking about, especially when aligning with a global services company, especially when they ask for exclusivity? Thanks. So I'm going to start by saying this is an example of a question that should be more specific. Do you feel like we need more info? Because I'm not exactly sure what he's asking. I've been in these types of circles before, so I have kind of an idea, but I agree. Like it does need a little bit more context. 
Now, I, I think we can answer it in, in some vague terms quickly, but I think to really dig into this, like we, we just need more information about what niche or market you're in and really just, if you're going to ask a question, like please include more information because it, it helps us understand it. And I think we can provide more value to you as well as, as to the listeners. But with that in mind, so he explained this to me in, in your words, what he's asking so that we can talk this through. So my understanding of what he's asking is that he wants to create a like a, a partnership program where other businesses will bring them in to either deliver services or they will bring their partners in to deliver services. By what he said about when aligning with a global global services company, it seems to me like the global services company, like think of them as like IBM or Dell or HP or something like that. And they have a services organization, but they don't necessarily provide all the services themselves. So I'm kind of thinking back to my consulting days where I did exactly this and worked for companies like that. And what they will do is they have basically sales reps that are kind of all over the place and working with enterprise companies. And when they sell services, it's on their paper and then they turn around and they outsource it to somebody else. Typically, when they have exclusivity at that point, really what they're doing is they're saying, we will subcontract to you, but you are not allowed to subcontract to somebody else. The part about exclusivity throws me a little bit because aside from that situation, I can't see a, I can't see something where like a global company like that would come and say, we want you exclusively to deliver this and they want exclusive access to you. They don't want anybody else to hire you. That seems odd. Yeah, I would agree with that because you're not just a consultant. You know, you're not a contractor, right? Unless he's talking about starting a consulting firm because he doesn't specifically say he's building a software product. Right. So that's where I think we, we probably need more info to, to answer that. But with all that, what type of engagement models would you recommend thinking about? What does he mean by that? Like hourly rate or versus weekly retainer versus monthly stipend or per project? I mean, that could engagement models could be like, well, how are you going to like structure the the contract for the services? Is it going to be on your paper or is it going to be on somebody else's? Because whoever's paper it's on is typically going to be the manager of that relationship. And so if it's, you know, Dell's outsourcing to you, it's going to be on their paper and it's going to have all their terms and conditions. And at the end of the day, that customer is Dell's, not yours. So if let's say that you were to reverse it a little bit and you are a large software company and you bring in Dell to perform the services, they're still going to want it on their paper. But you could turn that on its head if you have enough leverage to say, no, it's going to be on ours. And this is our customer because we found them and we sold them the software. But at that point, like Dell is not going to have a huge number of reps or technical services people on staff that are going to be knowledgeable enough about your software to be able to go in and do consulting engagements. You know, it's, it's possible they may do that, but you have to be fairly large in order for that to happen. I, I've seen it with even, you know, extremely large pieces of software. They just don't have the technical staff because they can't pay them and they don't want to pay them either because those people are consultants. And if every minute that they're sitting on the bench, the company is not making money. So most of those sales types of organizations, Dell, HP, IBM, they have a sales organization to sell services, but they don't have a delivery services organization with the consultants on the bench because they have to keep them at capacity like 100%, at least like 85% of the time. Like So they have to be booked almost nonstop throughout the course of the year in order to even turn a profit on it. Tough business, man. This is why we do products. Am I right? 
Yes, because products are so much easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they you just snap your fingers and they're good one, Mike. I like that. So, anyways, PJ, thanks for the question. Hopefully, that was some help to you. If you have, if you want to write in with more details, we can try to tackle it again in a future episode. Uh, but if not, I hope that was helpful. And Mike, interesting coincidence, we got two questions about selling across different currencies. The first question is from Paul, and he says, I'm enjoying your podcast a lot. I feel like I've got endless insights because your back catalog is huge. I'm a software developer who's just started thinking about what it'd take to start a SaaS. And he has two questions, but I'll read his one about pricing now. He says, in a SaaS that targets regular, everyday consumers, how do you account for currency exchange differences in your pricing? Charging $50 US per month may seem fine in the US, but in a less wealthy country, that could be a significant portion of someone's income. So my first piece of advice is don't build a SaaS for consumers. But aside from that, you have thoughts on this, Mike? Well, I think I would probably follow the advice of Ed Freyfogel, who spoke at MicroConf a couple of years ago. And his general advice for, for situations like this is ignore the currency exchange piece of it where you're quibbling over nickels and dimes for for the exchange rate as it fluctuates. So if you decide on, let's say, $50 a month, US dollars, what is the equivalent in pounds, for example, or what is the equivalent in euros? And then on your page, display the pricing using like browser location data to figure out where in the world they are. And you can display the page in local currency for whatever that is. As I said, like you wouldn't want to say something like if it's $50 a month and I don't know, we'll, we'll call the exchange rate and we'll say that it's even 40 euros. You wouldn't want to say 40 euros and 32 cents, for example, and then fluctuate it as the currency exchange. You probably just want to say 40 euros. And then if it goes up a little bit, that's fine. Just eat it until they get close enough where it really makes sense for you to start changing those numbers to say 40 or to 42 or 45. I wouldn't even worry about that stuff, but you can just display the page in the local currency. That should be enough to get you through for the most part. Yeah, and Ed Ed runs opencagedata.com if you want to look at his API for figuring out where in the world folks are. I think that's good advice. I would also say to focus on a single market to start with. Like if, if you haven't written a line of code, then pick a market. If it's going to be the U.S., that's fine. Charge in U.S. dollars and worry later about, oh, we're going to expand into India or we're going to expand into Eastern Europe or, or other less wealthy countries. I mean, if you're going to start in the U.S., then the next place you would probably expand is to, is to Canada and then to Western Europe. And in those places, while you do have different currencies, you know, they're kind of on par in terms of what you would charge. I would probably just do a, like you said, you know, just do a conversion and, and charge that. So I would be less concerned about this. You know, once you get into less wealthy countries, they can't afford that just started out in a single country, build up a business. And then by the time you get there, you'll know what to do, right? Thinking about it in theory, about something that's a year or two out, I think is just, it's just not helpful at this stage. So thanks for the question. We have another one about selling across currencies, probably a similar answer. It's from Scott Barden. He says, I'm a recent listener on the back of Robin Einar's tiny seed announcement a couple months ago. After being a longtime listener to Swing for the Fences types of startups podcasts, it's nice to find a community that I'm more in tune with. I listened to last week's discussion about pricing. I wondered if you had any thoughts about pricing the same product offering across currencies, particularly to customers in countries where their currency may be weaker. So it's a similar question, but I think it's couched a little differently. He says, for example, would you price a B2B product that's selling for £249 per month in the UK 
as a 249 US dollar product or would you adjust it for the exchange rate? Currently, that would be $309 USD based on when he wrote this email. So similar question, similar answer, Mike, or what do you think? I would think that it's in many ways similar, but I think that there's also a little flexibility you have here from the marketing standpoint where if you're going to price it at 249 US dollars, going to 309, 309 is kind of like an odd number. I might do 299. Yeah, I would too. Or 324 or something like that. 309 is just a weird number. Like I would try to stay away from those. Right. That was a witty discussion. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our next question is about how much to have in place before starting to sell. He says, I'm building a tool slash service for myself that other people are willing to pay for. Is there a checklist to follow to take this from a hobby to a real thing? Do I need an LLC, terms of use, privacy policy, a lawyer, et cetera, before I accept any payments? Or can I literally just set up a payment system and go? And let's make the assumption that he's in the U.S. because he talked about, he asked a separate question where he talked about U.S. dollars. So what do you think, Mike? Is the answer, it depends? No, I think you can just literally set up a payment system and go. Like if it's, if it's still brand new, you probably don't have a whole heck of a lot to worry about. Like if you don't have terms of use or privacy policy and stuff like that, until somebody complains and says that that's the reason that they're not buying it, I don't know as I'd spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, I mean, is there some is there a small amount of risk in doing that? Yes, there is. So consult an attorney, think about it, whatever. But realistically, this is what you and I have both done with brand new products that are just starting. I did a sole proprietorship, which just goes on your Schedule C on your taxes. So I did not have an LLC for, I believe it was seven years I was operating. I mean, I had software products, I had info products, I had, I was consulting. And that was just all without an LLC, without terms of use. At some point, I think I had a, I mean, eventually I put a privacy policy in for some products and stuff, but it's a little bit of risk tolerance, but really the the risk is probably pretty low. I have always tried, I always try to take the simple approach, right? The simple approach to get to basically get to selling, you know, and I, I would also question you, you made an assumption there where you said, I'm building something that I need that other people are also willing to pay for. I would ask, how have you validated that? Don't assume that that's true. Go out, spend more time validating that before you, you know, sit in, in a hypothetical basement and, and code that out for six months because I think a lot of us have made that mistake. So thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. Our next one is about determining an equitable equity split. And I'm going to leave him anonymous in case the person he's he's, uh, talking to also listens to the podcast. He says, hey, guys, a friend of mine came to me with an idea for an app and I'm considering going ahead with it. I'm a developer and I'll be doing all of the dev work, the support, et cetera. My friend will be doing the outbound sales marketing, et cetera. Instead of creating another company and all the overhead that entails, because I already have a corporation, I'd like to own the software and pay him a cut of the sales. How would you go about determining the split? On one hand, the development will be a lot of upfront costs for me, but when we get to market, he will be doing the bulk of the work with mine leveling off a bit with additional development and support. I really think he'll be integral to the success of this as I'm not an outgoing person. He's a radio personality and and good at the kind of soft skills that I lack. I guess I'm asking if it's crazy to split 50-50 or should I be asking for a larger cut? Thanks for any help or direction you can provide. Interesting question. 
And I think that the top 10 lies developers tell themselves is that when the product gets to market, my workload is going to drop down quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that that's on an unrealistic assumption. The workload for a, a software product is not, is absolutely not going to drop off once the product gets to market. You're just, you're not going to have enough features in it that you want to put in it. And the, the other assumption I think here is that there's not going to be very much marketing work or sales work that needs to be done until the product is done. I think I think that that's a, a bad assumption to make as well because I feel like there's there should be a lot of it upfront because it helps to cut down on the risk that you're building something for six months or a year that you know nobody is going to pay for or you can't get it in front of enough people. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I, it's going to be in a rare 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 case that you don't have more work to do once the product's launched. So something to think about. The other thing I would say is. In advance, I would I would not go off and build this for six months while he, you know, the your partner does nothing because he should be starting marketing, starting to generate traffic on the internet, starting to do if it's going to be cold calling or cold emailing or or getting leads and making pre-sales, right, and getting people screenshots or mock-ups or this is customer validation. Like, has your partner found ten? people or companies willing to pay X dollars for this product, then I would stop development. I would not do that until, you know, in almost all cases, I wouldn't do it until you have 10 or 20 or 30 or whatever the number is that that you feel comfortable with. There's upfront work that can be done to validate this more and reduce risk that has nothing to do with writing software. So that's another thing that I would consider. And even the entire time you're building the software, he can be pounding the pavement and you know beating the bushes, so to speak. Let me think of another dumb metaphor for this. But I, I just think there's more work to be done than him just kind of hanging out until uh, you know every bit is in place. And then okay, now we start the marketing engine. You know, it's like I, I I've talked about this before, but my second book was called Start Marketing the Day You Start Coding. And frankly, these days I think you should start doing that actually before you start coding. And with that, we didn't actually answer his equity split question. And it's not even equity, right? It's revenue share. Should we first talk about because I'm the whole idea of not actually splitting ownership is interesting because it seems to me like it screws his co-founder, right? Because he has no ownership in the thing, right? That was my first thought as well. And I and I don't know whether that's, you know, mental direction he was going or whether it was just the fact that he's already got a company and is going to be using existing resources and doesn't really want to open up a second company to do it. And therefore, like it would make sense in that case to have the software owned by something. And if he's not giving up equity in his own company to do that, then it still needs to be owned by somebody. But I would say that like, I think that you could have an agreement between two people and it could be written down that just says that like, this is going to be under this umbrella for the time being. And at some point in the future, we're going to branch it off into a different company just to make paperwork easier for the time being. I think that that's a, a perfectly reasonable thing to do, especially if you're just trying to avoid like legal costs because the product has no customers yet and no revenue and you're going to be sinking a sizable chunk of effort into it. The other thing that this particular case that does for him is it allows him to write off a lot of those costs because he can write it off on his taxes and say, oh, well, we've spent X amount of time doing this and we bought this particular product or we're writing it off a portion of this service that we're using. Yeah, I agree. I think that's how I think about it too. I, I think I feel like it might be unfair to your, you know, co-founder if if you have it under this same corporate thing. So I would perhaps try not to not to do that. I mean, he does say later on he's you know he's asking if it's crazy to ask for a fifty fifty split or if he should be asking for larger. And I I don't think that it's crazy to ask for fifty fifty, but I I would have a hard time if you feel like the contribution of the other person is equal in weight to your own. Then I would have a hard time asking for more than fifty percent. That's how I feel too. I mean, if you were to come to me and say, look, I'm the developer and 
I'm going to do support. And then this other person handles all the other stuff. It's typical kind of CEO, CTO role or the sales and marketing and developer role. I think that's a good split. And I think if you're both all in on it and you're going to be cranking on it, that 50-50 makes the most sense to me. It's the other things surrounding this though, that this is more complicated than most situations, I think, which is why we're kind of digging into his points one by one, because um, it's just a, a unique way that he's approaching it. And I, I think we've kind of voiced some, I don't know, concerns or just thoughts on how we might do it differently. And our last question for the day is about business appraisal services. And I'm going to keep him anonymous as well because he's asking about potentially selling his company. And I, I don't know, I just want to be mindful of stuff like that. His name's Paul. And he says, hey, Robin, Mike, I've been a longtime listener of the podcast. Thanks for creating such a great resource. I have a question about business valuation in preparation for selling a company. I'm having discussions with potential acquirers, and I want to have some official documentation to defend the valuation I want for my company. I know there are many ways to value a SaaS business like mine, but I think I would have more credibility if I hired someone to do a proper valuation. Can you recommend any resources for this type of appraisal? Do you think it's even worth it? Thank you. And keep up the great podcast. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different businesses out there that would do an appraisal for you. Uh, FE International, they're a microcom sponsor. They come to, they've come to pass, I don't know, as far as I can remember. Uh, Rob, I think you said you knew of a, another one off the top of your head that does an appraisal. Quiet light brokerage, yeah. You could reach out to either one of those. But the thing that I would keep in mind here is that if you do go out and get like an independent third-party appraisal, just because you're getting that to try and justify your position does not mean that it's going to come back the way that you want. It's I see it kind of like selling a house and you may decide that you want more money for it or it's worth X, maybe a million dollars or something like that. But they may come back and say it's only worth 800000 And then you have to decide, okay, well, are you going to take less or you're going to be potentially be disappointed about it or are you going to hang on to it and think about that in advance of getting that appraisal as to what your inclination is before you go do it, because I don't think you want to be surprised if it comes up and then all of a sudden now you have to rethink your position on those things. Yeah, I'm struggling with, I don't know if it's worth having an appraisal or not. I actually feel like an appraisal is one way to, it's a theoretical way to value a business, typically based on a multiple, either of net profit or of your revenue. If you're going to sell to a financial buyer, you typically sell over the multiple of net profit. And if you're going to sell to either a strategic or these days, if you're SaaS and you're selling to private equity, you get a multiple of revenue. So you get a much higher price for that. So, you know, Paul, I don't know if you have a, if you have a SaaS app, I would try to find someone who is willing to talk to you about revenue-based multiples. And in that case, if you did get an appraisal from FE or Aquilite, they're going to be talking more about the net profit stuff because they deal more with financial buyers. I do think they have connections with some private equity but I'm, I'm just not sure about the details of that. So I think an appraisal might be a nice to have in, in the back of your mind just to be like, well, that's what I can get it if I were to kind of sell it through those channels. I don't know of someone who, who will come in and appraise other than that, like other than through kind of their buying network, because it's, it's really what you can get for it, right? It's a market, market price. I mean, the appraisal is what, you know, you get a bunch of bids and you can figure out you know, what, what you'll ultimately get for it. So, so I actually, you know, as a side note, I do have a contact who could help you with that. I don't want to call him out on the podcast without his permission. So Paul, if you want to reach out directly to me 
you can frankly email questions at startuptotherestofus.com and that'll, that'll come to me anyways. I can connect you with him, assuming if you have a, a SaaS app, we can kind of talk about it's in a certain range and he can get really good multiples for it. But anyways, so yeah, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I, I feel like an appraisal, why not do it? But I don't know how much value I would put on that. And I don't know that I would use it during negotiations unless multiple buyers were trying to pay you under that appraised price, then you could always whip it out. But then I guess that's the price you're going to get for it. So I, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with this, with the idea of, of trying to sell it based on an appraised value rather than just a, running a market, you know, kind of a, an auction type uh, scenario. I think we'll get a better price there. Yeah, I think the, the way he phrased this question was that, you know, I'm having discussions with, with potential acquirers and I want to have some official documentation to defend the valuation I want. So it's not that they have come to him and said, hey, here's what we think it's worth, or it doesn't seem like they've gotten to that point. It's just, I think he'd feel more comfortable if he had something in hand to be able to help justify his position. And I don't, I don't know as you really need that. If you're trying to play multiple acquirers off of one another, you can just say, I've got an offer over here for more. And at that point, it's really just about how much you can get them to you know, push their offers up. Right. It's like, how, how badly do they want the business? You know. But good luck on that process, Paul. It's obviously, you know, it can be both fun and stressful to, uh, to sell your business and do wish you the best of luck as you move forward. Well, I think we're about out of time for today. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.